Resistance was in Ziggy Malamud's DNA, as both her parents were highly political. So it was no surprise she joined the Socialist Workers' Party as a teenager. But she was restless, frustrated with the organisation's hierarchical structures. Then a protest in 1996 changed everything. The Socialist Worker Party had a big conference each year called Marxism and it actually, that fell on the same day. So I'd actually gone to a couple of Marxism meetings in the morning and (laughs) men talking about stuff, you know. Not like I say, I mean, I still consider myself a Marxist. But anyway, then and then at sort of 11, 12-ish, I can't remember, but sort of midday-ish, I went off to this, um, the Reclaim the Streets thing. And it was just like... For me, there was no going back after that moment. I was like, oh, my God, you're offering me that or that? Are you kidding? You know, like. Ziggy had discovered the beginnings of the anti-capitalist movement, a subculture that would mix fun with revolutionary spirit. Welcome to Rebel Women, a podcast about history's troublemakers. I'm Esther Freeman, and for the next few weeks, I'll bring you previously unheard stories about amazing women who've changed society. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you like what you hear, give us a rating and a review. Even better, share it with your friends. This is our fourth series, and it is a special one, as the stories come from the Museum of Youth Culture's archives. The Museum of Youth Culture is an emerging museum that celebrates and preserves youth culture over the past 100 years using photography, ephemera and personal stories. In 2020, I was approached by them to collect 10 stories about women activists and youth culture for their project, Growing Up in Britain. Ziggy's story is one of them. London in 1972, but moved to Africa when she was four. She spent most of her childhood there, first Mozambique and then Ethiopia, as her parents fought for the Southern African liberation. When she returned to London, readjusting was hard. Life could be rough. You had to appear tough and streetwise. Seeking something different, she moved to Brighton. It would be a social and political catalyst. I was going to a lot of parties. I was having a pretty great time, in all honesty. Tell me a little bit about those parties that you were going to. Are they free parties or were you going to yeah, parties? So the whole Yeah, the rave scene stuff. Um, uh, the rave scene stuff, although I wasn't heavily, heavily into... I did go to some of those big kind of um, uh, aircraft hangar, kind of N25 things, but not 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 so much, but just more like... Yeah, free parties on the beach or squat parties or, I don't know. I mean, especially in Brighton, there was a sense that the whole sort of town was was our, was our carnival, really. Um, yeah, a lot of Class A drugs, a lot of mushrooms, a lot of kind of weekend festivals with hallucinogens, that kind of thing. While in Brighton, Ziggy joined the Socialist Workers' Party. From my parents, uh, you know, I, I thought they were too liberal and became a revolutionary in the way that, I mean, I think my mum probably, they were Marxists, my parents, but I don't think they were revolutionary in their, 
kind of actions. But Ziggy found herself frustrated by the Socialist Workers' Party. The sort of overview is that I got involved in them and then was becoming quite disillusioned and quite angry with some of the hierarchical politics and the not very good gender politics. And also I was kind of socially quite um, in the more kind of hippie, druggy scene. Anyway, then the anti-capitalist movement started. And then I sort of shifted, and then that was a big kind of turnaround for me because then I shifted from the SWP in terms of hierarchical organisations and the party form to really embracing the anti-capitalist idea of non-hierarchical organisation, of kind of living the change you want to see, those kind of things. Although I still maintained a Marxist analysis of class society in a sense and still do. Capitalist critique dates back to Karl Marx with the publication of Das Kapital in 1867. The idea of class struggle was a bedrock of many social movements, from the 1917 Russian Revolution to the Equal Pay Campaign. The 90s anti-capitalist movement was dominated by young people responding to the failures of traditional political systems. I suppose there was the whole Berlin Wall coming down and apartheid ending and all that. So that was such a shift, wasn't it? Berlin Wall, South Africa, a couple of other things, I can't remember. But that felt like a real shift, like kind of liberal global capitalism had won, but kind of for the better in some cases, you know, both those examples were were the kind of people themselves reaching out for that. And then that turned into such a terrible disappointment, both in in South Africa and in um, East Germany and so many other places, like... The, the way that kind of the way that those transitions were handled and that, that it was so clear that the kind of brutal aspect of global capitalism was dominant in all cases and any last vestiges of a dream of bourgeois democracy being able to kind of be a liberatory force for people was was done and dusted by by the time I was in my mid-20s I suppose and so I, so in that sense I think maybe it was clear that we had to have a really radical rethink and that the kind of liberation struggles that our parents had been backing which were often kind of state liberation struggles if you see what I mean um were not were not going to be the the path that I wanted to take then along came reclaim the streets it originated in east london in opposition to an extensive new road building program but if you want to learn more about the history of that movement check out the episode we did last season there's a link in the show notes Ziggy's arrival coincided with the takeover of the M41 in Shepherd's Bush. So we took over the all six lanes of, a, of the flyover motorway in um, in Shepherd's Bush, both in both directions, by just... And I've done this a few times, you know, where it's a very, very scary when you just first go onto the road because the traffic's obviously moving, but you sort of have lots of brightly, you know, high-vis and everything. So, um, the, so we're there, and... Um, And again, just so brilliantly organised from the sort of DIY culture sound systems. There were these figures in huge sort of ball gown dresses on stilts walking around, which looked like just a carnival costume, but underneath it they had pneumatic drills and were drilling up the road. And just that sort of sense, the the sort of theatrical thing, I suppose, the sense of the absurd and stuff that we borrowed from the Situationists, the art of it, I suppose... 
there's a lot of humour. I can't remember exactly now kind of examples, but you would see very funny placards. And just this great sense of togetherness and power and that we could sort of really change things. The difference from the old-style revolutionary groups was stark. With the SWP, it was quite dour and there was a kind of revolutionary duty to do things and it wasn't very fueled by joy. And that bringing your kind of joy and delight in each other and kind of brother and sisterhood and uh, this oft, you know, oft badly quoted Emily, Emma Goldman quote about uh, if I can't dance, it's not my revolution, which is actually an incredibly irritating quote now. And I kind of hate it when people use it, but I thought it was absolutely fantastic at the time. The exact quote attributed to anarchist Emma Goldman is, if I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution. However, its origins go back to 1973 to an anarchist called Jack Frager, who correctly saw it as a good T-shirt slogan. It is probably paraphrased from a much less snappy section in Goldman's 1931 autobiography. It did, however, neatly sum up this new generation of revolutionaries and how they mix partying with politics. And I think because the rave scene and the squat scene and everything was self-organised, I think this idea of DIY culture also, and if you look at some of the protest camps and then later more into kind of the climate change camps and things, but how we use those skills that we develop through squatting to quickly build a solar shower and a uh, washing up station and a compost toilet or something for, you know, a thousand people that were descending on a protest site. I mean, that was fantastic. Reclaim the Streets held monthly meetings to plan what would come next. They were hugely popular, with between 50 and 100 people attending. They wanted to go bigger and discussed a day of international action to coincide with the 25th G8 summit in Cologne. It became known as the Carnival Against Capitalism and protests took place in 40 cities around the world. In London, it was one of the most powerful in the sense that we really did take over the city of London and we stormed the Futures Exchange building and we set off fire hydrants. Um, I don't know about the sort of people numbers, but it was brilliantly organised. We started in um, Liverpool Street Station and we had all these kind of affinity groups which went off and, and reconverged and there was... We used to do these car crash things, you know, to block the streets. And Was that literally crashing cars? It, yeah, very slowly. I mean, at right, okay. five miles an hour, but you'd bump them face to face and then throw the keys oh, away. So the cops okay. would have to remove the cars, you know, stopping them, I say crashing. Yeah. There was a sense of great triumph and power about it and sort of, you know, um, I, my, my friend wrote later, you know, it's the first time she's felt truly ungovernable. the whole thing could have never happened. Many years later, it would emerge that police spies had infiltrated the group. There was one on the Central Planning Committee and even one who drove a crashed car. Ziggy remains unfazed. The line I have also at the time when it started coming out 10 years ago or whatever is that the biggest damage that it can do is make us mistrust each other. I also want to really honour what we did do and honour our friendships and honour the people that I trusted and that we did make that massive movement together. And actually, I don't want to kind of 
rewrite it and say, oh, it was all bullshit because we were infiltrated. It wasn't bullshit at all. It was absolutely phenomenal. And we did do that. And I don't want to start mistrusting the people around me. Yeah, some of them probably are cops. I mean, that's what I used to say at the time. And people say, oh, there's probably a cop in this meeting. I was like, yeah, well, there probably is, but never mind. Do you know what I mean? Let's just crack on. Like, yeah, when you're in a meeting of 50 people, we knew at the time that one of them was or one or two of them were probably cops. But so what? What's that? What are you going to do? Not have a meeting then? Then they've won. Yet damage was done as it emerged that some female activists had relationships with these so-called spy cops. They lied their way into the women's hearts and beds, allegedly fathering at least one child. One victim described it as state-sanctioned rape. I mean, it's very, very painful for the people that were actually their friends or lovers. I mean, that's just, you know, that betrayal is, is heartbreaking, but in terms of your question of like, does it make me reanalyze the movement? No, not really. No, I think we were absolutely brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Despite pulling off one of the biggest acts of civil disobedience in generations, Ziggy felt the movement lacked strategic direction. She decided to go her own way. Climbing into a van, she travelled around Europe, eventually settling on an anti-capitalist commune in Spain. She joined the People's Global Action Network, which was an attempt to consolidate the anti-capitalist movement with groups like the Zapatistas, who had started an uprising in Mexico. Oh, I don't know. It didn't really transpire that way, I suppose. What happened to the whole sort of... I think it, I think the limits of it itself became clear, maybe. The culture changed. I then had kids. Um, yeah. There were further protests after the carnival against capitalism, the most famous being the so-called Battle for Seattle. But by the early 2000s, the movement largely died out. It was pretty much a kind of exciting subculture. I mean, I think it was good in terms of the fact that it brought the word capitalism back onto the agenda with the idea that it's possible to be an anti-capitalist. And I think that that kind of, you know, it's easier to imagine the end of world the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. And I think we challenged that and I think that was good. But in terms of actual social change, I mean, one thing I was always talking about and still do is the difference between a movement like that, which is a kind of subcultural world in itself, and actually a movement like the liberation struggles in Africa or the work the workers' struggles for the eight hour day or the Russian Revolution or kind of stuff where you really I think that the people involved in the anti-capitalist movement at the time actually were quite unhistorical and short-sighted of what a movement is and could be and almost limited actually because we, we, we wanted all our mates to be involved and everything but the idea of a mass class struggle and what that would look like to have actually whole workplaces rent strikes um you know mass rent strikes mass sort of general strikes uh you know school strikes I think that was they couldn't quite imagine having that kind of power and I think that's a a shame though I loved the sort of culture of the anti-capitalist movement and ended up living in um sort of full time in a in a collective because of that and everything I I never really was convinced that it was going to be the way that the revolution happened actually in all honesty I, I really enjoyed it and I think it was good to feel the power and it was good to feel and it was you know it was good to have all that media coverage and everything but it alienated people as well it was a little bit privileged it was a little bit young people who could do all that um you know after having kids you realize how much you couldn't 
Uh, it wouldn't have included people with disabilities. And the, although there was some aspect of self-care and all the rest of it, but it was pretty much for cool, able-bodied people with enough means or enough sense that they would be able to have enough means to be able to take those kind of risks and leave their job to do this or that or get arrested or something like that. You know, there's only certain people who can actually do that. Ziggy still looks back on those days with fondness. There was a moment, a glimpse that we might be part of something international, that we were we were fighting it over here and other people were fighting it over there. Yes, it did feel like that the concept of kind of cellular non-hierarchical organising on class basis could be the way and could see us out of the kind of darker side of capitalism in a way that the, the state class politics sort of party form couldn't. So there was a sense that right now we've cracked it and we're and we're international and we've got this brilliant idea. And yeah, I think that, yes, yeah, in that sense, yeah, there was a sense of like, OK, the miners, that was very sort of entrenched in the idea of the union form, the sort of entrenchment of the working class as a form. Because that was the other thing about the whole concept of what is work and things like that. You know, we were also economically at the time when work was being redefined so we saw the miners as a bit of an old-fashioned class and the dockers and the print workers to a certain extent as kind of old-fashioned workplaces and an old-fashioned kind of class struggle and because we were working in a different way there was an idea sort of political idea that class struggle would change how it looked along with how work looked the sort of working from home and capitalising on your, you know, the entrepreneur thing and, you know, the various ways in which it was, there was some theories going around the bourgeois press that, you know, work was looking so different. I mean, to a certain extent, I suppose, all this Zooming that we're doing at the moment, I think maybe that was a little bit of a con as well. But yeah, there there was something in that idea that, that the world was looking different and we were going to be the different kind of struggle. Culture is working towards setting up a permanent space in Birmingham, a national museum telling the story of youth culture in Britain. While we wait for that to be completed, you can visit their current exhibition, Growing Up in Britain, A Hundred Years of Teenage Kicks, which is on until the 12th of February 2023 at the Herbert Art Gallery and Museum in Coventry. If you have stories you want to submit to the Museum of Youth Culture, see the show notes for a link to their website. You can also find them on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Join us next time on Rebel Women for more stories of rebellious youth.